Libby. And I'm Farron. And this is the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> if I was your kid, I'd call you Farron. You would. You would. You totally would. Hello. <laughs> Welcome back to the tip of the iceberg. Oh my goodness. It is everyone's favorite episode. And I'm not even being sarcastic. You're looking what? at me so wide-eyed. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> no, really. No. This week we are offering you a new Survivor Speaks story. Yeah, and that is the favorite. People yeah. like to hear from real survivors, which I get. I which makes do. sense. Yeah. Yeah, when I'm doing presentations and stuff, people... like It's good to get background information and it's good to get statistics and you know theories about why this is happening but it's so much different when you hear it yeah in real life totally that totally changes things yeah and so that's why I'm happy that we have another one to share today yeah yeah so we had someone volunteer this story they typed it up for us to share so it is anonymous um but we have from what I can tell a pretty full story yeah it's a long one Mm mm-hmm so what we're going to be talking today about today is childhood sexual abuse, and that's mm-hmm. the story we're getting. So um, be aware that that's the conversation, and if if it gets too much, turn it off or take care of yourself while we're talking about this. Yeah, child sexual abuse is the yuckiest part of mm-hmm. doing, in my opinion, yeah. of doing domestic violence sexual assault work is dealing with kids who have been sexually and physically abused and neglected, and that's that gets you... That's yeah, tough stuff. It's, it's a soft spot. The, yeah. the kid stuff is really hard. Mm-hmm. And I think it's super common, but mm-hmm. a lot of people don't get to have this conversation. Right. And so people know that it's happening, but they don't see what it's actually like. So I'm glad that we have a written story here about someone's experience with it. Me too. Yeah. So yeah. I'll just jump right in. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Okay. When people learn about my past, where I grew up, how much money we had... They usually assume that I had a happy childhood with no violence or trauma. Except for people who have experienced abuse themselves, people are surprised to learn that even though I grew up in a safe suburb in a wealthy family, I experienced sexual abuse as a young child. The sexual abuse occurred starting around the age of five, and it continued until I was six years old. My mother had an adopted brother who who would sometimes stay with us to visit for up to weeks at a time. He was cool. He owned a motorcycle, and he sometimes took me on short rides. And he was very nice and paid me a lot of attention, which I wasn't used to getting as the middle child. In the evenings, we would all sit on the living room and watch a TV or a movie, and he would frequently have me on his lap. At first, I liked being on his lap, but then, over time, he started to touch parts of my chest under my shirt that I did not feel comfortable with. As a five-year-old, I didn't know why I didn't feel comfortable. It just felt wrong. I was confused as to what to do about it because this only happened when we were watching TV with my parents. And although I felt like it was wrong, my parents never did anything about it. So far, this seems... So, did her parents see this happening? When they were watching TV together? You know, it doesn't say. I assume, like, maybe the lights were down. Maybe. Okay. And so everyone was just kind of chilling. Yeah. And hanging out in the dark, watching a movie. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. So, I mean, when we talked about the 
um, Astounded in Plain Sight episode. Yeah. We talked a little bit about grooming mm-hmm. and what this looked like. I, I see a lot of evidence of that here. Yeah. Me too. In that he would take her on motorcycle rides and he would give her a lot of attention. And um, that spoke to her, I guess, being the middle child. She didn't Mm -hmm. get a lot of attention. And so I see some grooming behaviors happening here. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We'll read on. Okay. This went on for a while. And over time, he progressively started touching areas that were closer and closer to very sensitive chest areas. I became afraid of what would happen if I continued to stay silent. So I eventually told my mom what was going on. When I did, she immediately believed me and told me I was right to tell her about it. Well, that's That's good. great. That's not always common either. No. That's really great. And it's really great that she felt safe to tell her mom. Yeah. At that age. That's yeah, really absolutely. good. Absolutely. That's really, really good. Mm-hmm. Soon after, she called a meeting with the three of us. My uncle, me, and her. Oh, my gosh. What? That sounds terrifying. Can you imagine? No. No. Why was the child involved in I don't meeting? know. That's my question. Okay, well, I bet we learn. We Hopefully. Reading, if, if we do not learn, we have to come back to this. Yeah, because... we'll have to figure okay. that out. Okay. Um, so, the three of us, me, my uncle, mom, great. She asked me what I thought should be done. What? And I said, he, I, I think he needs to get a girlfriend. And she's five? She's five. Okay. My mom... I'm just picturing, because I have I know, a five-year-old. I, I have a five-year-old right now, and that's... So sexual abuse has happened... Wow. That is just a fascinating way to move forward from this. Okay. Okay. So, um... My mom made the decision that he would never be allowed near any of her children ever again. I'm wondering if mom could have made that decision without the five-year-old child in the room, in the meeting. Because I think mom had probably made that decision before they came to that meeting. Yeah, I wonder why it happened that way. Yeah. What was the end goal in having... Her there. The little one. And it's scary to me because although it sounds like this isn't happening from this story based on how it's being told, very frequently with child predators, there's threats of violence mm-hmm. against the child and the child's family. It's mm-hmm. very frequently like, I'm going to kill your mom if you tell anybody, or I'm going to kill your family, or whatever that looks like. Yeah, That is super common throughout mm-hmm. child sexual abuse. So it scares me that this is the way this went, because while it doesn't say that there were threats of this and there might not have been in this in this case... If there had been, that would be terrifying for a child Mm -hmm. to sit in a room with the mom and the person that hurt her Mm -hmm. when that person very likely could have said, like, well, if your mom finds out about this, Mm -hmm. she's going to die. It's going to be your fault. Mm -hmm. That sounds terrifying. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, so I guess the decision was made. My mom made the decision that she that he would never be allowed near any of her children ever again. Okay, that's where we're at. Oh, it talks about how she felt. This is perfect. That meeting was very awkward for me, and although it was scary, I felt safe with my mom since she had believed me. However, looking back, it was kind of a weird thing to do. Thank you. That's how I feel. To sit a child down to discuss things with her sexually abusive uncle. I know what I I know now that my mother was sexually abused in her childhood. 
And I think that she had wished that she had the chance to confront her abusers. And so she was giving that to me. Okay. Which may not have been appropriate for a six-year-old. No. Absolutely not. No. But I can understand. I guess that makes sense. That right? Like, yeah. if, if, if this had gone another way and the mom was like, great, we're done. You're out of my life. You're never coming back around any of my kids again. Right. We're never going to talk about this person again. We're never going to see him again. He's out. Yeah. He's over. Then that would leave her with like a sense of, I guess, unfinished mm-hmm, business mm-hmm. because she never did get to confront him. Yeah. And maybe she wanted him to have to be accountable accountable to her child and her together there at that meeting. Yeah. And I wonder the distance in time between... So do I. Between when this happened and when this conversation was had. Right. I wonder if it was had pretty quickly. Or maybe it was some time. Could have been. Because in my head when I read this, I was like, okay, told mom on Friday, Tuesday morning, we had this conversation. That's quick. Mm-hmm. But it, if it had been like, whoa, pump the brakes, three months later, we can all have a conversation together. Still, I don't know if I would do that, but it feels a little better than the next morning. Yeah. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I don't know. And I wonder, too, if the mom had talked to anybody to get, like, some guidance about this. Mm-hmm. Like, I wonder if mom had talked with dad about what he thought. Does dad know? Is dad around? Yeah, I guess I That's shouldn't never... assume dad's around. But yeah. I'm curious if mom kind of had to... Because that would be really hard as a parent to have your child disclose that mm-hmm. and not have someone to share that with who's an adult. Right. You know, to, like express your concern and your upset feelings about it to the other person. Especially it sounds like it was her brother too. The mom's brother, right? Yeah, so that's even more complicated. Yeah, so that's really like mom had a lot of feelings there. Yeah. I think mom did the best she could. Yeah, I agree. That would be a terrible situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really hope she had support. Me too. Yeah. It's really sad. Okay, so we left off. Um, she was feeling that she's not she, sure if it was appropriate for her as six years old. Right. Ooh, time goes on. Okay, about six years passed, and I did not see or speak with my uncle. And then one day, I answered the home phone. My uncle was calling for my mother. It left me shaking, and I felt betrayed that she was still in contact with him. Of course. Yeah. Wow. So by now, she's... 12. 12? Okay. 11, 12. Depending. Okay. Yeah. Um, she later explained to me that she did occasionally speak with him about family ma- matters, and I understood why it was difficult for her to cut off all contact with him. After that day, I did not see or speak with him ever again. Wow. That was so triggering for her. Yeah. It's so scary. complicated when it's like a family matter. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because if she has to speak with him for family matters, then that's one thing. But then also I would imagine that it felt like her mom was keeping that from her. Mm-hmm. That's really complicated. Um, a few years ago, my mom was talking about her other brother and her other, other brother was brought up. I asked her if she had talked to him recently and she said that he had died several years ago. I was stunned that she had not told me that he had died. I felt like that was information that I deserved, needed to know. The, the brother who had hurt her. Yeah, mm-hmm. was dead. Wow. And she wasn't told about it. Wow. As the years have passed, I have heard some things from my mom that make me believe that my sister had gone through something similar with her uncle. 
I asked her about it once and she denies that he did anything inappropriate to her. She describes what he did to her as tickling. She thinks that mom overreacted by banishing him from ever seeing us again. I'm really not surprised that mom reacted that way, though. Because if she was a survivor of child sexual abuse herself, I think she had a lot of insight into what was mm-hmm. what was to come. Yep. And she wasn't going to let it go there. Well, she wasn't taking any chances. Based on what was described in the story, didn't sound like it was tickling. No. So the sister who might have experienced something different may have rationalized it as yeah. like, ooh. Which is normal. Yeah. I don't want to necessarily deal with this in the same way. Mm-hmm. It was tickling. That's mm-hmm. what it was. I just think that that must be, have been really hard for her going through this terrible thing and feeling so unsafe and then having her sister not believe her at all. Yeah, that's really sad. Or saying like, okay, calm down. Yeah. You, your mom, mom overreacted. That didn't happen to me. Plus, like, I want this guy back. He was the cool uncle. Come back. Yeah. Which would be really hard. Really. Yikes. Caused you so much grief. Yeah, totally. So the writer says, is it all relative? After the incident occurred, I went to therapy and continued to be in therapy until I was 21 years old. My parents never really talked to me about what happened and my relationship with my brother and my father deteriorated. Um, I was suspicious of the intentions of all men and boys. That's super common. As a teen, I was very depressed and angry at everyone around me. Although I tested high on almost all measures of educational attainment, I barely graduated from middle school and high school. I struggled with sexual boundaries, self-esteem, making close relationships with women and men, and eventually ended up in an abusive relationship, which I am thankfully no longer in. I say that that's common because when I was saying I was suspicious of the intentions of all men and boys, that makes sense, right? Because you've learned, like, well, even the people that are supposed to love me have hurt me. Absolutely. So who's to say that, is this what all men are like, you know? That makes sense. And and also that she had hard time with boundaries and and stuff that's i mean i think that there's no worse i was talking to a forensic interviewer one time and she said there was no worse trauma for a child than she was talking about incest Mm -hmm. with a parent yeah um but i think that the same can be said for maybe not the same level of trauma but the same can be said for any child sexual abuse victim because the reason that child sexual abuse perpetrators are good at what they do and get away with it is because the kids trust them and love them and it's not some creepy guy usually like at a baseball game it's your uncle or your dad or your brother or a family friend and so if somebody that you trust and love would do that to you then how do you how do you trust some guy that you met in a in a bar right because it's all downhill from there right this is the highest standard right this person is my blood they're supposed to take care of me or this person is my family whether it's family or a close family friend like it's that same bond Mm -hmm. then who's to say for like this random dude Mm -hmm. who's just walking down the street and statistics show that like Farron is saying it's super uncommon to Mm -hmm. have it be a complete stranger right who assaults a child. Right. That almost never happens. Like when we were kids, we learned all about stranger danger. Don't talk to strangers. Don't take things from strangers, which I think is still worthwhile. Right. But nobody ever talked to me. Now I'm 31. So nobody ever talked to me in the 90s, say, about 
a creepy uncle or a creepy dad's creepy friend or like a a coach or like all those people were trusted adults that were supposed to be safe for me. Right. They talked to me about like strangers. Right. And and I'm 25 and I feel like the same same thing. I remember sitting in the van, like my family's van with all my family and running like kidnapping plans. Like if if this were to happen, what are you going to do? How are you going to defend yourself? And it was, it was very foreign, like, if a stranger, yeah. it's, it was all about the strangers. And I, and what did they say if, if they did say that it was a stranger? Like, what do you do if someone is touching you inappropriately? You talk to somebody safe. Yep. Somebody you trust. But somebody you love. that can also be described for a lot of perpetrators. It's totally. somebody safe, somebody you trust, and somebody you love. You know? And so it's really complicated. I think, I think we're doing better about this now. But I think we set a lot of kids up for failure. I think that a lot of the problem was that in, and I again, I don't know everything about the history of crimes against children, but I really think that our parents came up when they were raising kids in an age where they were starting to hear a lot of national news stories about kids who were kidnapped and murdered, mm-hmm. like John Walsh's son. Sure. And that's horrifying. And so I think that, like, our parents were like, oh, my gosh, there's all these crazy people out there who are lurking around Mm -hmm. at parks and at elementary schools who are going to hurt my kids. When statistically, I don't think they realized that the people hurting their children were the people that they trusted the most. Yeah, well, and I think when you're talking about... I don't think it was people had that awareness. Yeah, absolutely. When you're talking about awareness and what's talked about... Right. It's a lot easier for someone to talk about some maniac on the street that took your child and hurt them versus like, yeah, it could be it was my husband, right? You know, yeah, it could be. And we're working through it, and I don't know what to do. Like, it's be in our house, right? There's so much more. Someone we exposed our child to, and we didn't recognize that they were a creep. I mean, the guilt that parents go through too. I can't even imagine. imagine. Yeah how guilty you'd feel yeah when in reality you don't know what's going on and it's not your fault no you're a victim too right yeah absolutely absolutely well she goes on to say more so we'll we'll get into it okay although i can't say that my sexual that the sexual abuse i experienced caused all of my pain and bad decisions i do believe that it's a significantly negative impact on my life I felt that before this had happened, I was innocent and after I was not. At the age of five, I no longer trusted my brother or father to to not be sexually abusive. And I no longer trusted my parents to be able to pay enough attention to me to protect me from abuse. Mm. Which makes sense, right? Because her parents, that that within itself is terrifying. Her parents were, what, five feet away when this was happening. Right. It reminds me a lot of uh, Larry Nassar. The, the U.S. gymnastics doctor. Oh, yes. Because those parents, some of them were even in the room. Yep. Or, you know, not... it. They were in close proximity. Right. When it was happening. And there was... And they just had no idea what was And they happening. had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. And that must be terrifying as a kid to be like, well, even if my parents are around... They can't keep me safe. They can't. They, they can't stop it. Yeah. Yeah. In my early 20s, I started to become self-aware and began looking at my behavior and what was causing it. I entered into a psychology educational program where I learned about human behavior. I wanted to know why the sexual abuse had affected me that way and what makes someone abusive. As part of my education, I interned at an agency which provided care to sexually abused children. At first, it was very difficult for me to hear the stories of the sexual abuse. It made me feel angry and depressed. I believed that children's lives were ruined, and it was 
and I was angry at the person who had done this to them. At the same time, I also felt that I had no right to the pain that I endured because of my own child abuse. Compared to the children that were raped or forced to do child pornography, my experience seemed like nothing. I wondered how my experience could have caused so much damage, even though the worst thing he had did was make me feel uncomfortable. It seemed like what he had done to me was on one end of the spectrum of sexual abuse, while there were so many other children that experienced the opposite side. It made sense to me that the less invasive the experience, the less damage would be caused, which would mean that I have had overreacted to what was relatively a minor instance of child sexual abuse. These were all the thoughts and inner struggles that I had to work through in order to take care of myself and work with child abuse survivors and their parents. Through this experience, great supervision and therapy, I learned the real factors that determined the outcome for survivors of any type of abuse is how the abuse was handled once it happens, once it happens, and what kind of help they get afterwards. Mm-hmm. I want to pause there because I think this is really common. Mm-hmm. When she talks about how she feels that her reaction she wondered why her reaction was so strong when like if child sexual abuse or child abuse is a spectrum she feels like on one side a safer side than someone who had to do horrific acts or child pornography or was or were raped or or whatever might that be she she feels like well where who am i to complain you know which makes a lot of sense yeah and i've even had domestic violence survivors do that that's what i was gonna say yeah that's what i was gonna say compare their victimization to other women that they know in the shelter and they're like Mm -hmm. wow like he wasn't like my situation is nowhere near as crazy and scary as hers and then they feel like maybe they're like their situation mattered less yeah. or wasn't as bad or whatever. Or like, okay, calm down and suck it up. Yeah, you know? yeah, you could but have it worse. What I think is interesting is in almost every survivor I've talked to, whether it be in a shelter or whether they've come in for advocacy or whatever, it's always like a, well, he wasn't physically abusive. He was only emotionally abusive. So it's not as bad. But for the people who were physically abused, well, he, he was physically abusive, sure, but... He never strangled me. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, people have it worse. And then for the people that were strangled, it was like, yeah, I mean, he strang- he choked me, mm-hmm. but he never sexually assaulted me. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's always downplaying mm-hmm. what you're feeling. Yeah. Do you, have you seen that? Oh, Did yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. Which makes sense. And how I like to think about this is it's like, if I think especially related to issues of sexual assault because we are so conditioned to be like, oh, that's fine. Everything's fine. Calm down. It's fine. Yeah. What I like to compare it to is like if someone were kidnapped, right? If someone were abducted as an adult and say two people were abducted, one person was abducted and they were like held captive for a week. Mm Mm-hmm. And they were, didn't have a lot of food, and it was really scary, and it was terrible. Mm-hmm. And the other person was abducted and taken for ransom. Mm-hmm. But they might not have been, like, held in a basement for a week. Mm-hmm. While they've had different experiences, right? And they might have different cuts and bruises coming out of it. Both people still have to deal with the fact that they were abducted. Yeah. And what goes along with that? They were taken away from... From their safe place. They could be snatched up at any moment by anyone. And now they have to live knowing that. Mm -hmm. Anyone could kidnap them. 
they are worth a sum of money or they are it doesn't really matter what happens mm-hmm. after that they both have to deal with that initial kidnapping and how that changes their worldview yeah similarly no matter what happened with sexual abuse that barrier is still broken mm-hmm. and it becomes a shift in worldview so i understand and i and i hear people talk about this all the time like oh it's not as bad yeah but it is because we've crossed this line. Yeah. And now you're forever looking at the world in a different way. And the world is no longer safe. Right. I, does, yeah. that, do, does that make sense to you? Or do yes. you feel like I'm wrong? No, I think you're totally right. Because regardless, her safety was taken away from her. Right. And her, her choice was taken away from her. Her innocence was taken away from her. Yep. And so you can't really compare. I get why victims and survivors do that. But I agree with you that Mm -hmm. it still happened to her. Right. And I would bet that if something even more intense had happened to her, there would be similar thoughts of... It will will always... Somebody will always have had it worse than you. And am I overreacting? Yeah. Is this actually okay? And am I the problem? And it's hard for her, I'm sure, to not wonder if she's overreacting when her sister told her. Yeah, that's a whole Mom overreacted. I didn't take it that way. I mean, she didn't really get a lot of validation in that, except from her mom, which was really important. But the only other known victim to this guy that she knew told her that it was a lo- she was acting a little right. extra. Right. And that sucks. Absolutely. Yeah. When a child is sexually abused, their life trajectory is entirely dictated by how their caregivers respond. Do they believe the child? Do they take quick action to stop the abuse? In my case, the answer to both of these is yes, which I will forever be grateful for. However, after that, although I was put into therapy, that was not enough to properly deal with the trauma that it had caused to my relationship with my parents and siblings. In addition, the therapy I received was not trauma-informed and so did not address the core issues that I continued to struggle with for almost 20 years. After learning that children of sexual abuse were not necessarily doomed, it was easier for me to see a brighter future for them, and I learned to accept my reaction to my own childhood trauma. It also helped me to focus on what really matters for survivors of child sexual abuse, validation and trauma-informed care in their family, therapy, and school. Mm-hmm. Should we talk a little bit about what trauma-informed care means? Yeah. Because I think when you're a mental health professional or an advocate, we understand what that means. But I think for the mm-hmm. average person listening, they're probably like, what is trauma-informed care? What does that mean? Yeah. So it might be helpful if you give a brief kind of example of what that looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I will say, too, that although I'd like to say that it's easier for mental health professionals and advocates to know what trauma-informed care is, that's something that I see lacking a lot. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, I provide mental health counseling here for survivors of trauma. Um, and a lot of it is domestic violence and sexual abuse. And and very frequently, it's, it's not uncommon to have conversations early on when I'm working with clients that are like, I'm really glad that I'm coming here because this place gets trauma Mm -hmm. this place gets domestic violence this place gets sexual abuse and they tell me that their last counselor had pretty misguided ideas yeah on that yeah and and 
it was difficult for them to be in a relationship that was abusive and go to that therapist or that counselor because they didn't have a good understanding of what domestic violence was Mm -hmm. or they didn't have an understanding of what healing from sexual assault looked like. Yeah. And I think, I think this person is right. It does come back to trauma informed practice. So it's really important. I think trauma informed care and practice is broad. Mm hmm. Right. And it it's kind of like an umbrella and it can mean a lot of different things. But when it comes down to it, I feel really strongly that trauma informed care is about supporting the survivor and knowing it's never their fault. Mm -hmm. And that most of the issues they're dealing with today can be linked back to the trauma Mm -hmm. that they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. So if you are working with someone who's really out of control or you have a friend who, you know, is, is making risky decisions or, um, having turbulent relationships or whatever that looks like, they're, they're not doing things the way that you feel like you would do them. It's not because they're inherently flawed or inherently bad, or they're just stupid and make dumb choices. It's because through their trauma, they've learned a way that keeps them safe. Right. And that makes sense to them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that make, doesn't make sense in the greater context of our world. Right. And that's where the trauma comes in. Right. So trauma-informed practice is looking at these behaviors, for example, substance abuse. Substance abuse is really common with trauma, as we've seen a ton. Mm-hmm. And instead of saying, like, okay, you repeatedly use substances you're addicted to alcohol you're addicted to opiates whatever is happening saying like why mm-hmm. why is this happening and what are you trying to fix here right with this and recognizing that more likely than not trauma plays a huge role in that yeah that's my understanding what did i miss I nothing mean, i I'm sure that's not like the perfect no, snapshot. No, of but it, I but think I think that's um, I think it's really important to kind of define it and talk about it a little bit, um, so that people who are listening, who have experienced abuse, who are suffering from trauma, or whose children, God forbid, mm-hmm. have gone through what this person did, understand what the importance of trauma informed practice and um, can seek out a mental health professional, an advocate, a teacher, a school counselor, whatever, who understands trauma-informed practice and is prepared to work with them or their child on that Mm -hmm. because that's really the only way to to work with somebody successfully, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, when I said it's a broad concept, it truly is. And I think I'm describing trauma-informed practice in the context of our work with survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. Right. There might be other things, too, in in more specialized populations. I mean, if you, as a parent, maybe trauma-informed care looks like or trauma-informed parenting looks like you have a kid who you know has experienced trauma from whatever it might be, and they won't turn lights on, off. They won't turn the lights off. They will, like, leave every light on in the house on, and they will go into their room and leave all the lights on, and they won't sleep with the lights off. Could be anything, which is super annoying if you pay the power bill. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right. Or if you have migraines. Right. Or if you like to sleep. Right. Ever. Right. Right? Like, it's a crappy situation. So a non-trauma-informed response would be like, okay, turn the lights off. This is unacceptable. You're 11. Like, mm-hmm. we need to fi- like 
turn the lights off, right? Yeah, right. Which makes sense. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't make sense in a trauma perspective in which who knows what happened to this child in the dark? Mm-hmm. Who knows what the dark reminds them of? Mm-hmm. And who's to say it's not going to happen again in the dark right. in their mind? Right. It's a bigger issue than just they want the lights on. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. And I think wherever, it, I mean, you there's examples of this in educational settings, like in classrooms, or we constantly have to check ourselves on trauma-informed practice on a daily basis in our work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you work in a, in a shelter of any kind, I would assume it would be a daily check-in with yourself, like, am I being trauma-informed? Like, why is this happening? Mm-hmm. But I think it can happen anywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's a struggle for parents or for people who love people that are dealing with this to understand why. Yeah. Why the behaviors are happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really, really tough stuff. Yeah. But, I mean, this person says flat out that what really matters for survivors of child sexual abuse is validation and trauma-informed care in their family therapy and school. So this is from the mouth of someone who experienced it. And what made all the difference for her was trauma-informed, a trauma-informed life. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense. Yeah. But it's not something that's talked about a ton in just the world at large, I would say. Right. No, and I think a lot of parents just have no idea what to do, yeah. you know, when their child comes to them and says that somebody's hurt them or somebody's touched them inappropriately, made them feel uncomfortable, whatever. I don't think a lot of parents know how to respond to that mm-hmm. in a way that is helpful for the child. Um, yeah, because that's, that's your worst tough. nightmare. Oh, yeah. Your worst nightmare is this person, this little kid you love more than anything else is now unsafe in the scariest of ways. Mm-hmm. And there's that level of guilt yeah. that parents have to feel because it's usually somebody that they've exposed right. to their child. Right. So yeah. how do you react as a grown-up mm-hmm. or as an older person, whether you're a teenager or you're a grown-up or you're 96, whatever, um, how do you react when someone you care about that's a child I say we'll talk about that first like that's a child comes to you and said this is happening or this has happened mm-hmm. yeah I mean I don't um I always try to be really careful about saying like this is what I think I would do yeah. because as an advocate and as someone who's worked with lots of sexual assault survivors I know what I've done with them right but when it's my kid that's a whole different situation oh yeah, yeah. that's a whole other level of yeah of like trauma for me yeah. Too. Oh, right? yeah, for sure. And when you're feeling that trauma in the moment, too. Yeah. One thing that all, I don't know, child trauma experts, I guess, almost all of them agree on is that the reaction is important, mm-hmm. which is scary because you are taking this in for the first time, too, and you are experiencing this kind of with them. Yeah. But it's it's scary to have so much weight be on your reaction. And what they say over and over and over again is that you need to react with kindness and with calmness and you need to say, I believe you. Mm-hmm. I believe this happened to you. Mm-hmm. And then let the let the fallout happen behind a closed door. Right. Or a little bit of time, give it time 
but the most important thing is to react with kindness and with calmness and validation and validation yeah. in that moment yeah right Be- and that important. makes sense to me because like if a kid comes to you and says like I think it's probably pretty scary mm-hmm. to come to a grown up and say this is happening because there's so much shame that goes along with it and I think a huge piece of it is like testing your reaction mm-hmm like, if I come to you and I'm your kid and I say, Farron, or, I mean, Mom, <laughs> if I was your kid, I'd call you Farron you instead would. of Mom. You would. You totally would. Mom, this really scary thing happened to me, and I don't feel safe anymore, and this hurt me. Mm-hmm. You're my safe person, right? Right. And so reacting in a way that you, like, keep that safety net going mm-hmm. is super important. Mm-hmm. And keeping yourself from getting overly mm-hmm. emotional in front of the child. Right. Is important. Right. Because if you react, like, if you get overwhelmed and you go into crisis mode, which would be rational, we'll say, which makes sense, and you're like, oh my gosh, and you have an emotional reaction, it's really possible that that kid's going to direct that emotion at them and they're gonna feel bad about right. it they're gonna feel like it's their fault now my mom's upset mm-hmm. no kid ever wants to see their parent cry or get upset especially if they suspect that it's because of something they did yep like i think most people can agree that making your mom cry is the worst mm-hmm. and so when you're seven like that's got to be really really sad yep and es- hard especially if a, a lot of a lot of children who have been sexually abused internalize that and then they yeah. think it's their fault. Totally. So especially if it's like, I did this, this is on me, and you're crying because I did it wrong. Yep. It's my fault. Right. Yeah. Which is very common when you hear survivors of child sexual abuse talk about how their parents and loved ones react. Right. Which, again, like, if you were looking at a context in, in like, the greater world... Only makes sense. If you had a kid tell you this, you would be upset. Yeah. And you'd have every right to be upset. It would be weird if you were not upset. So tailoring that reaction and holding it in to react with kindness and with calmness is crazy to me. I'm really surprised that at five that this person knew that it wasn't okay because that's very young yeah um and it sounds like a lot of what was happening was under her shirt correct and so i'm just surprised that at that age she had the the awareness to feel a uncomfortable about it and b know that she needed to tell somebody yeah um because little kids like that i think it's a lot easier for them to be victimized because they don't they don't understand that that's mm-hmm. that's not okay and that that's their private parts and they need to tell someone yeah um so that's um i'm curious what the conversation because her mom's a survivor yeah i'm curious if she had had lots of conversations with her kids Maybe. when they were little about their bar- their body and they're the boss of their body and well and even um, and i was thinking I'm, about this i'm too. impressed that she yeah Uh, yeah especially because in a lot of the conversations that are had about child sexual abuse which i would say aren't happening as frequently as they should yeah i think it's better now than it used to be but right but still when when people talk about it 
I frequently hear people saying, like, if someone touches you under your underpants. Yep. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that was not under her underpants. Right. So I'm very impressed. Me too. Yeah, like I said, because it was under her shirt. Mm -hmm. I'm very impressed by that. Yeah. Sounds like this person has been (laughs) self-aware for a very long time. Yeah. I, um... I'm surprised. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. I'm so glad that she had that awareness and told her mom right away so that it didn't escalate to something more mm-hmm. than what happened to her. It's horrible what happened to her, but I'm really glad it was able to be like nipped in the bud right away. Yeah, absolutely. Rather than something. Yeah. Yeah. Because she knew this isn't okay. Right. That's really, really important. And it, at doctor's appointment with my, with my kids, they definitely, the doctor says, who's allowed to see you naked who's allowed to see your penis why don't you tell me who's allowed to see your butt and they ask the child and um, of course the right answer is like mommy and daddy Mm -hmm. and the doctor and that they always have to ask your permission first Um, but our doctor it's it's pretty great that our doctor has had those conversations and said if anybody ever touches you there you need to make sure and tell your mom and dad Um, but of course I don't know how much my kids absorb because my kids are five and two and I don't know how much they would and then and then there's that whole um other layer Mm. which we'll do a podcast about this for sure probably about Michael Jackson and leaving Neverland Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. about um you know after after that um was over Oprah did a special with the men who had been victimized yeah and she talks about how so often the children are are groomed so much that they enjoy it Mm -hmm. That they feel special. Right. And they feel like they like it. And they think they have this special relationship and all this stuff. And so then there's there's the kids like this person who felt, this is uncomfortable. This isn't okay. I'm telling my mom. And then there's the kids who are like Jan mm-hmm. and Broberg, Broberg yep. who loved B and felt special mm-hmm. or the kids in Michael Jackson's case who idolized him and felt right. special. But I and think, so then how do you protect those kids? Cause right. they're not going to tell you because they're groomed to not say anything. And also they, mm-hmm. they really like it. So yeah. that's scary too. Yeah, Even absolutely. for me as a, as a doing this work, I find that terrifying. Uh, yes. Because it makes me feel like what if somebody victimized my child and you wouldn't know I, they didn't tell me because they, they felt special. Right. That's so scary. And I don't, I'm probably not being helpful right now saying that's so scary. No, it is. Like, I'm sure people are listening going, yeah, that's scary. Tell us how to avoid that happening, Theron. And I don't have an answer. The the truth is. I'm just saying that scares me. You could go through the whole book A to Z and to avoid it from happening, but there's no guarantee. There's no, yeah. Yeah. And that's why it's so important to react well and to yes. know how to react. Yes. Because statistically, this happens to a lot of kids. One in six boys. And and one in three yeah. girls, right? Yeah. Am I right? I, I, I think so. I, I think so. I think so. But one in six boys will be a victim of child mm-hmm. sexual abuse. That's a lot of... That's a lot. Yep. That's a high statistic. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And and so as much as we want to say this is never going to happen to anyone to my kid. I love... Yeah. It's it might. It might. And the only thing that you can do is number 1 w- watch for warning signs yeah. of a, 
of grown-ups or people that are older paying closer attention to mm-hmm. maybe one kid or the other. That was how it was in in yeah. with Jan yeah. in the abducted in plain sight thing is he was very clearly favoring her. Very clearly. And maybe what we need to do is like if people watch listen to this episode and they feel panicky or whatever maybe we need to do a whole episode on grooming and what that looks like i think that would be a great idea because that's a huge part of it and that's how they pull it off yes is the grooming right they groom everybody right they groom the mom and dad they Mm -hmm. groom everybody yep yep that's why they get away with it yeah absolutely yeah so this is a downer Mm -hmm. in this i'm so glad that our person that wrote this yeah. the person who wrote this that she got the validation she needed from her mom and her Absolutely. mom immediately was like protecting her from him believed her i'm really sad that she struggled as much as she did right but she but did she came out the other she side did. you know and she now did. she is self-aware and now she she talks about going to school and having a good life and and I mean, she had to go through it. Yeah. The only way out for her was through. Right. And I think that's the way it is with a lot of abuse survivors. Oh, yeah. Maybe all. Yeah. But she did. Yeah. She got through it. And and she... Now, you see, this is, what I, this is what I get so emotional over and my eyes get all prickly about is these people who have been through hell and back. Mm-hmm. And they use their story to make a difference. Yeah. And that's exactly what this person did by mm-hmm. submitting it to us to, to help however many people are listening to this podcast, you know, know what this looks like. Yeah. This is survivor advocacy and it is inspiring. It's like the most powerful form of advocacy. Yes. I believe in, in it opinion. 100%. Yeah, me too. I love it. hmm and I'm so happy that this person felt safe enough and brave enough to share this story with us because how many people in the world and how many people that listen to this podcast have had very similar situations? Yeah, I'm sure so many. You know? Yeah. Whether as a child or as a parent, mm-hmm. it's likely. Yep. It's very likely, statistically. Yep. Yeah, totally. So we're so grateful that she shared. Yeah. 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 Well, if you listen to this and you're as inspired as survivor advocacy as we are you know send us a note we could get it back to this person about how strong they are about how brave they are Mm -hmm. or if you want to tell your story and join this survivor advocacy movement um please feel free to yeah we have an anonymous link that's on our podcast page Mm -hmm. if you want to submit your story anonymously um head to that so yeah that's on safeproject.org and you can find our podcast from there. Mm-hmm. And if you would like an episode about grooming and more about the ins and outs of child abuse and child sexual abuse, you know, let us know mm-hmm. and we can dig some stuff up for you um, for sure. Yeah. And if you have experienced this, mm-hmm. whether as a a primary victim who did experience this abuse or a secondary victim who had someone they cared about experience abuse in this way, reach out for support. Yeah. It is terrible to go through this alone. Right. So reach out to us and, and we can help you find your next steps from there. Even if, even if we're not the people that can help you best, we can help you navigate that. Yeah, get to those people. Yeah. Yeah. And our hotline number is 745-3556-307. There it is. <laughs> if you're not in Wyoming. 
745-3556. We I, I always look at her when she doesn't say the I always area forget code to say the area code. Because we have a lot of people that are not in Wyoming. I know, and I forget about that. I always assume everyone's in Laramie. And they're not. They're not. <laughs> they're not. So, so that's fine. Yeah. All right. Well All right. I mean go eat some ice cream. This yeah, one's really this one's sad. Kind of a downer. <laughs> Very sad. But it's so, so important. important. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So okay. well, bye. Goodbye.